Hi there, this is Pastor Tim. I'm the minister at Eastside Church. We are a United Methodist congregation in East Atlanta Village. We seek to be creative, historic, and inclusive. And we are thrilled that you found our podcast. If you'd like to learn more about our church community, you can visit us at www.eastsideatl.org. Well, again, friends, good morning, and welcome to worship with us here at Eastside. If you were not here for the introduction, again, just want to extend a, a warm word of welcome to the guests with us, and we really genuinely want to know that you're here, whether you're a guest or a, a regular member or a tender, and you can let us know that you're here by filling out the check-in form that is in the comments section of the live feed, and if you're watching this or listening to this later in the week, it will be embedded in the description of the podcast or the video. So please let us know that you were here um, so that we can put names and faces to those folks that it tells us are, are listening live or throughout the week so that we can follow up with you all. Well, this morning we continue our series, Aspire, our, our journey together collectively toward asking, what does it look like for the image of God that we have a shared conviction as Christian people is, is etched within each and every one of us human beings? What does it look like for that image of God to, to sort of grow and to come to bear and to come to full maturity and fruition in our lives? And the way that we've been approaching this question is by looking at the creator, the one in whose image we have been made, and seeking to aspire to take what we see and learn of God in our tradition and then ask how that can be translated into our lives as human beings as we seek to grow in both wholeness and in holiness. And this morning is a little bit of a part two to last Sunday. Last Sunday, we explored the theme of making amends that we are called to be a people who go to and seek to make right that which we have brought brokenness to. And this morning, we kind of flip the paradigm and come at it from the other side. This morning, we're looking at forgiveness and we're looking at it from the perspective of being maybe the one who was harmed or wronged or received the, the pain from another, but being the one to go to and to initiate a conversation that could lead to reconciliation. We're going to sort of wade into this idea of forgiveness this morning by looking at the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 18. These are the words of Jesus, and we're going to begin reading in verse 15. So friends, as you're able, I invite you to, if you'd like to follow along on your tablet or with your, your own um, printed Bible, the words will also be on the screen, but I invite you as I read to listen for the word of God for us. Jesus speaks to his disciples and followers. If another member of the church sins against you, go and then Point out the fault when the two of you are alone. If the member listens to you, you've regained that one. But if you're not listened to, take one or two others along with you so that every word may be confirmed by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If the member refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. 
And if the offender even refuses to listen to the church, let such one be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly, I tell you, if two of you agree on earth about anything you ask, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there among them. And then Peter came and said to Jesus, Lord, if if another member of the church sins against me, how many times should I forgive? As many as seven times? Jesus replied to Peter, not seven times, but I tell you, 77 times. Friends, the word of God for us, the people of God, thanks be to God. Let us pray. Good and gracious God, I ask that you would take these words that I have prepared and that you would make them be your word for your people in this time, that you would speak through them and where and as necessary that you would speak in spite of me. And God, I ask that as I preach them, the words of my mouth and the collective meditations of all of our hearts across space and across time would indeed be found good, right, pleasing, and acceptable in your sight. God, our great rock, God, our redeemer, God, our savior. We pray all this in the strong name of the Christ and everyone typed amen. For the last couple of weeks, I have been reading a book that has been on my list for a while. I've been wanting to get to uh, Trevor Noah's memoir, Born a Crime. And as I was reading through the book this week and also in, in tandem thinking through and preparing for this morning's message, this section of Trevor's book really, really struck me in an interesting way as I was thinking about forgiveness. He tells the, the, the harsh background of his mother's upbringing in South Africa under apartheid. His mother being a black woman in a very poor situation, in a very complicated family reality. He tells the stories of her having a time in her life when she would go down to the river and mix water with dirt and actually drink the, the water-dirt mixture to have a sense of something being in her hungry belly. He tells the story of how when she was a, a, an older of the children in that community, she would go around and collect all the hungry kids that were younger than her, and then they would go around town and pick up all the empty booze bottles that were lying in the street. They would collect them all, then take them to whatever the market and uh, exchange them for the deposits, the small deposits of coins that they could get for glass bottles, and then she would take them to um, one of the village supermarket-type places and buy food so that the kids would have a meal that day. Brother Noah's mother had an incredibly, remarkably traumatic and challenging upbringing, one that most of us in the United States have a hard time even beginning to wrap our minds around. And this section of the book, it, 
it related to this idea of forgiveness in a really profound way in a, in a, in a part of the book where Trevor's mom is reflecting with him on her past and what she says about the way that she now as an adult is relating to her past, I think has a pretty profound, profound note to sing for us or point to be made for us about how we embody forgiveness in our lives. Because essentially what she says to her son, he's probably in his early teens at this point, is Trevor, all humans, we all have a choice to make in life. And that choice is related to the reality that we can look back on the hardships and the difficulties and the, our past traumas, and we can allow ourselves and our lives to, in real time, become bitter, angry people. And we can live out the trajectory of our lives living from that, that hurtful past, that, that, that struggle of upbringing. Or, and she says to Trevor, we can choose to to see those realities in light of, did I learn anything from them? Did they make me stronger in any way? In any way, am I more powerful and more equipped as a human being? And how can I relate to those experiences with a sense of, of forgiveness, not of bitterness and of anger and of resentment? She tells her son, Trevor, as a young teen, that he has a choice to make in how he relates to his history, his past, the challenges, the struggles in his life, the people that treat him poorly. She's had that choice, and we have that choice in our lives today. And I, I can't remember, I need to go back and look, I don't remember if Noah's mother ever actually used the word forgive in that section of the book or not. But I found it so poignant, and it, it reminded me of another, of another talk that I had recently heard from Father Richard Rohr, the Catholic priest and theologian, and he sort of talks about forgiveness a lot, but specifically he was speaking of forgiveness in this, in this context, context as less about a particular individual or a particular event. But what Rohr was speaking to was our embrace of forgiveness is like a posture of being, like practicing forgiveness as a way of being, as, as sort of a part of who we are as human beings. And he was talking about the importance and the liberating reality that he has seen happen in people's lives when they sort of forgive reality, as they sort of forgive their circumstances, as they forgive the ways that they look at the world and see cognitive dissonance and are disappointed or are confused. And, and instead of looking at the world with judgment and angst and bitterness and all of these other realities, what does it look like to look at the world through a lens of forgiveness, to look at our lives through a lens of forgiveness? I felt like that was, in a way, what Trevor's mother was trying to say. Instead of responding with anger and bitterness, what if we respond by asking, what can we learn? How can it make us stronger? How can it make us empowered to move forward now? 
In our text this morning, Jesus speaks to a sort of very specific process. And Jesus isn't normally a super process guy. He doesn't always like lay things out in three steps. But in our text this morning, he does. He lays out kind of a three-movement process for the, the sort of future church communities that would, would, would come together after his ascension and would exist as his movement being carried off into the future. And Jesus teaches this, this way for humans within the church to be in relationship and community with one another. And while Jesus didn't have our, our modern language of triangulation when talking about relationship, conflict, and theory that, that many of us have, have heard of and are familiar with, I think in part what Jesus is attempting to do with this text of scripture and this teaching is to help the Christian communities that are going to bubble up and to grow avoid a lot of internal triangulation and getting knotted up internally within their communities and instead to embrace a more effective and peaceable and gospel-centric way of dealing with conflict when it arises. Now, I'm very familiar with triangulation because I have young children, and they are very, very smart. You'd think that they knew what triangulation was and that they were actually trying to implement it by some of the things that take place. But what often would happen is, or will happen or does happen, is that we hear somebody burst out into tears upstairs and then that child comes running down the stairway. We think they've probably lost a limb by the way they're howling. And they finally get down to to mom or to dad and they begin to tell us how the other sibling did this horrible atrocity, whether it be destroying their beautiful Lego creation or you know, dropping, a, dropping them on their head, I don't know, um, something terrible, right? And they go on and on and on about it. And early on, because I didn't realize what was happening, I, I maybe wouldn't have thought to, to invite them to invite the other sibling down to join in the conversation to be part of it. Let's, let's have everybody present who was present when this happened all have the conversation together and retell the story. But instead, what would happen is I would hear their side of the story, and then later I would hear the other sibling's side of the story, and of course, the two stories did not match up. And I was left to figure out and wonder what actually took place. I think what Jesus is seeking to do is to help these early church communities as they they grow and they get caught up in the work of this resurrection movement that was launched through Jesus' life and his ministry. He's trying to help them have a a way to deal with hurt and conflict and just human uh, friction that comes from any group of human beings being together in any sort of longer-term relationship. Jesus is trying to to give them a way to be in community with one another that is not freaked out or weirded out by conflict or by argument or by one person hurting another person or by somebody being offended by this or by that, but, but working it into his teaching in such a way to say, that's normal, friends, even within a even within a resurrection, new life community, we're still gonna get on each other's nerves and hurt each other's feelings. But the question is, what do we do with that when it happens, when it occurs? How do we move forward in a healthy way? 
Because what Jesus doesn't want is two people to begin to tell their side of the story to this group or to that group, and then each, each side builds up a coalition. And then instead of just having the two original people who were involved, then you're bringing in two full coalition parties to have this conversation about this conflict that really the only two people who know what actually happened are the two people that should have talked in the first place. Jesus is trying to help these communities avoid this by giving them some really practical, almost common sense advice on how to do life together as these burgeoning spiritual communities. And essentially, Jesus says, like, for starters, y'all just acknowledge it's going to happen. It's okay. It's normal. You're going to get in each other's nerves. You're going to hurt each other's feelings. You're going to tick each other off. You're going to get mad at each other. We're a spiritual family and all those things. Jesus grew up in a family and I'm sure that he and his brothers went at it from time to time. But what do we do? And Jesus says simply, the first step is encourage the two people involved to, to start with one another. Just have them start with one another sit down and talk. Now, of course, this comes with the assumption that the harm that was done is not the type of harm that would cause the hurt party to be afraid to be in the presence of the other human. So this is not that kind of of harm that we're speaking to. But have them start with each other if that is a a safe thing to do and, and it's of the nature that that would be appropriate and have them talk about it and see if they can begin to move forward in the conversation. And you could almost just stop right there and drop the mic and be done because how much in our world today and throughout history would we have avoided in terms of conflict and backstabbing and gossip and to and fro and all of it if we would have just gone to the person directly and had a straight one-on-one conversation about how they hurt you, about how you love them and how you want to find a way to move forward together. You know, I think a lot of time the other person probably doesn't even know that they hurt you. Sometimes certainly they do, but I think a lot of the time they're clueless. And it's not until you ask them to sit down and have a heart-to-heart conversation that they realize the damage and the pain that they caused you. And if we're all within the faith community together as one body, all reading from the same script and practicing the same uh, way of engaging conflict, we should all know that this is all for the good of the whole. We love each other. So we're not, we're not out to hurt each other. And if we do inadvertently hurt one another, we need to know that. Not only so that we can try to heal that wound, but so that the person who did the hurting can grow in their own walk, in their own maturity. If, if, if they don't realize they're a bull in the china shop, they may need somebody to, to lovingly help them see that and help them see how they can grow. Jesus says, start with one another, go to somebody directly. And then he says, if the offending person sees what they did and apologizes for it, offers to make restitution or amends and asks for forgiveness and you give it to them, you've won that battle. You have healed that wound or done the the work of, of, of healing that needs to happen for it to heal over time. And that's the best case scenario. And it works a lot of the time if people would just talk to each other when they're upset. But Jesus also knows that it doesn't always go that way. 
And sometimes the other person might refuse to meet with the, the person who's feeling hurt. Or they might agree to meet with them and then in that meeting refuse to acknowledge any responsibility or guilt or having done anything wrong to the offended party. And Jesus says here in step two, at this point, if that happens, if, if in that one-on-one meeting that's how it goes, then you need to essentially bring one or two other, other trusted people from the church, people who, have, uh, who, are, who are even, even keeled, have a, have a very steady disposition and are reasonable, have a lot of empathy and compassion, and have them join the two of you in a conversation, whether one person or two people, and have a conversation in that, in that context to provide some, some impartial counsel, to provide some mediation, to provide a buffer, and to provide somebody as a third party to just hear the conversation and the way that the stories unfold. And what could happen is that that mediating party, whether that be one or two people, they might, they might feel like, yeah, the, the, the offended who asked for the meeting in the first place they're right, this other person did them harm, but this other person refuses to acknowledge that or to apologize for that. Or sometimes the way it can go down is the, the mediation might say, actually, we don't think that this other person did anything wrong here, and we, th- we do think you were hurt, but we don't think that they did something that, that should have necessarily caused you to feel hurt, and they didn't do anything wrong, per se, and maybe the way forward is not through restitution or even an apology, but it's just through acknowledging that a misunderstanding took place. Or it could be that the mediation sees that the flip side is true, and actually the, the one that was calling the meeting with the other person was act, is actually the one that needs to offer the apology, and the mediation might come and, and, and offer that. But regardless, the goal is still always reconciliation and to work through the conflict together in community so that we can get back to the work of being the church together to this resurrection movement that the Christ calls us to do. But Jesus says that the second meeting with the additional folks from church doesn't doesn't go in such a way that reconciliation can be reached and the offending party continues to refuse to acknowledge any wrong in the matter and it's clear to the mediation that this person did do something that was actually pretty crappy and that they do need to apologize for or make restitution for, say they're sorry that that they did. But if they're unwilling to do that, then Jesus says, then you need to take it to the church. And by that, I think he means take it to the leadership of the church, and hand it over to them and say, this is what's going on. We're not sure what to do here, but this is how we see it. And this third step, it can be really, really hard because no one ever wants to say to, to somebody else in the church, well, I mean, I should say, in our, at least in our church context, nobody ever wants to say to another person that they're not welcome here in the church community. But imagine, if you would, if there was somebody in your church community who repeatedly is using out loud in in gathered church events, you know, racial slurs 
or homophobic language or offering sexist remarks and they've been talked to multiple times about this by multiple people and they don't see that it's something that they feel like they need to change or behavior that they need to repent of or apologize for. At some point, it is the job of the leadership of a spiritual community to say, if that's gonna continue, you can't do it here. We love you. We're gonna pray for you. We can even forgive you on the way, way out the door, but you can't, you can't bring hate speech into our faith community. It's not okay. And again, if you're willing to change and to work on it, that's a different conversation. But if you don't see it as a problem and that behavior is not gonna change, then this probably isn't the right place for you and we can't let you continue here. Just saying those words feels intense, right? But when you put it in the context of how those words could be doing damage to others in your faith community, you begin to see that you have to make decisions that that protect because the church, while it is a hospital for broken, weary sinners, it also needs to be a safe hospital for broken, weary sinners. We need to be able to come here and find sanctuary. And there are, just, it's just true, there are toxic, abusive humans in the world on this planet. They're in family systems, they're in people's workplaces, they're certainly in politics throughout our world. There are humans who have no intent to, to admit or to change certain types of behavior. And that behavior can be remarkably damaging to a spiritual family, to a faith community. Again, we can practice forgiveness, but that doesn't mean that there aren't consequences for the way that people behave in the world. Because friends, we are called to love absolutely everyone, period but we're not called to endlessly allow ourselves to be in the direct presence with hateful or toxic or demeaning or, or dangerous people. Just like we wouldn't put our own children in those environments repeatedly. We don't, we don't have to put ourselves in those, in those environments repeatedly and we need to protect certain environments for those that are there to find healing and safety. And sometimes the right thing to do in a family system or in a workplace or in a church is to create space or distance between that individual and that community that needs to be safe and healthy and whole. Now love, loving that person is not just asking them to leave, but it's expressing to and explaining them and teaching along the way what's going on and why how that behavior is causing pain in the lives of other people in a community, how that kind of language or those kinds of actions are harming others. Jesus says sometimes if it gets to a certain point, you may have to ask them to step away. And that's hard. Now, after Jesus says that there may be times when this takes place, Peter follows up with this question. It's kind of interesting that Peter asks it the way that he does. Peter, Peter asks, essentially, what is a reasonable number of times for me to forgive a particular individual within the church community? Like seven? That's pretty generous, right, Jesus? Like seven? And I think Peter actually thought he was being generous when he offered this statement. 
I think he was offering seven. It's the, the number of the days of creation, the days of the week. And if I, if I forgive every person in my church community at least once for every day of the week, that, that'd be pretty reasonable, right? And Jesus, and I think Jesus is trying to, is being funny here and also using a bit of hyperbole at the same time. He plays on Peter's, Peter's offer and says, no, Peter, not seven times, 77 times. His point being, it's an endless number. Jesus is not being literal with the 77 as Peter was being literal with the seven. He's making this bigger point that we worship and serve and we're created by a God who never permanently shuts the door on any of God's children. God never permanently gives up on anyone. Because friends, God operates from an economy of eternal abundance, which means that God has all the time in the world. And if it takes time for us to grow up, and to mature and to become who it is that God dreams that we can become, God can wait us out because God loves us and God has the time and God never gives up hope for any of God's children. So Jesus, he's essentially saying to Peter, as long as, as, long as somebody continues to, to come with a humble, repenting, contrite heart and they are seeking genuine forgiveness and reconciliation for what they did, we, just, we give it to them. It's not until they be, begin to say, no, I don't, I don't intend to change that or I don't intend to apologize for that behavior. It's not until that point that we begin to have that other conversation. But as long as people are still working towards sanctification and love of God and other human beings and they're trying and they're willing to acknowledge fault and to ask forgiveness and to start over, we continue to welcome and to forgive. Now, it doesn't always mean we have the power to let people off the hook for what they've done. Sometimes there are legal ramifications for what humans do that are outside of, outside of our ability. We can, we can forgive them for the way that it impacts us or the way that we're going to be in communion with that person. But obviously, sometimes there are external consequences that there's nothing that we can really do about. They may still need to do time in prison for something that they've done or community service or they may, they may need to come up with the money to pay back the church member for the thing that they stole from them, right? But the key is, are they confessing? Are they repentant? Are they humble? And are they being genuine? And do they really want to change and are just having a hard time? That's a different conversation, And I think that it's precisely God's disposition toward us, which is why we're called to offer it as much as we can to one another. Because God's love towards our human race, it does not show limits. And we're called to embrace and embody that same disposition. Somebody gets asked to leave because they refuse to change and then later they're knocking and asking if they can come in, if they repent and seek forgiveness and seek restitution and to make amends and to make things up. If their presence isn't deemed a threat or dangerous to other people in the community, it may be entirely appropriate to give that person another chance to come in 
and be a part. Jesus' point is that you can't really be his follower, though, while simultaneously refusing to admit that in your life, you too have been wrong. You too have needed to ask for forgiveness. You too have been guilty. You too have fallen astray and done the wrong thing. Jesus' point is that humans are humans and we're not God. We're made in the image of God and we're seeking to become as much like God as we possibly can, but we're still humans and we're not perfect. We've all fallen short of God's glory and screwed things up, which means that every one of us has a need to apologize, to make amends, to say we're sorry, to seek restitution. It's like a basic tenet of the Christian faith. It's like a collective understanding, part of the collective consciousness that if you're here with us, then you acknowledge that we need God, we need Christ, and we need one another because we're fallible, we make mistakes. I mean, this is why since the earliest centuries of Christian worship, we've had confession be a corporate act that's a part of our every Sunday weekly worship. That wouldn't have become a thing if the early church didn't think it needed to be a thing to always keep in front of us and give us an opportunity to offer those realities up in our lives back to God so that we might find healing and growth and wholeness. Our weekly liturgy assumes that we're imperfect. It assumes that we need to confess and be forgiven. Last Sunday with Jacob and Esau, we spoke to the importance of amend-seeking And when we already know that we're the one in the wrong, it's not the best thing to to wait for the other person to come tell us that they know that we're the one in the wrong. Jacob teaches us that the right thing to do is for us to go to the person that we have wronged and ask what we can do to make it up to them, to say that we are sorry and to ask for their forgiveness. But in our text this morning, Jesus shows us the reverse of that. And if it's not a Jacob situation coming to Esau, If you have been offended by the other person, it really is best to start with that person and to talk to them and let them know the way that their behavior hurt you and to seek to find reconciliation with one another. You're better off to have the awkward meaning and to get it out and to see what happens than you are to just simply do as many, I think, of us do in the church We just suffer harm in silence and we kind of wrap all those things up in the caves of our heart and we never express them because we don't want our expressing of how something hurt us to cause pain to the other. But sometimes it needs to come out or it can fester inside of us and lead to bitterness and resentment and the way for healing to take place is for that conversation to unfold in a way that is seeking love and grace and new life in that relationship. When apartheid in South Africa was finally abolished, they instated the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and the aim of this was to to help a really broken country work through the not only the divisions, but the atrocities and the trauma that had happened one human to another in in that country. And 
part of what happened was they would give wrongdoers the, the, the option to, to come completely clean in front of the commission to say, this is what I've done, it was wrong, and I'm sorry, and I need to publicly confess it. And in that, oftentimes what would happen is they would not, they would not bring the fullest extent of the law to those people because they felt that by offering the truth in this open environment, the healing process was beginning. And I think there's a lot of gospel in that, my friends. There's a lot of gospel in that. Speaking the truth in love, getting it out so that it can be forgiven and we can move forward and not always assigning the full extent of the punishment to the person who did the wrong. It's just true that God treats each and every one of us way better than we deserve. And each week, friends, we pray together when we, do, when we recite the Lord's Prayer, those scandalous words that we probably don't think deeply enough about enough of the time. God, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who've sinned against us. Are we really comfortable with that? Are we really comfortable having God's forgiveness towards us be contingent on our forgiveness towards the other humans in our lives? Because that's a big statement for us to, to, to say and to sing together every week. Do we really mean it? Are we seeking to make it real in our lives to the humans around us? Are we confident in our own willingness and our own capacity to do as as Richard Rohr talks about and as Trevor Noah's mother speaks to, to sort of begin to see forgiveness as a spiritual practice as much as anything. It's, it's an embodiment of a way of being. We practice forgiveness, forgive the world. We forgive life and disappointment and circumstances. We forgive election processes. We forgive, we forgive historic wrongs that have been done. We forgive the mistakes that have been made by people that we don't even know. And we forgive individuals who we do know. And it's all part of being faithful followers of the Christ and it's hard work, but it's some of the best work that we can do in our lives and in this world. So may it be so, friends. Amen. Well, we hope that you've enjoyed this week's message and we look forward to seeing you soon. If you listen from afar and you would like to support the work that we are doing in East Atlanta and on Atlanta's east side, you can visit our website, www.eastsideatl.org and find our giving portal there.